Our message this morning comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and I imagine that this reading is quite familiar for many of us. This text is what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, followed by the Beatitudes in Matthew. This is the first of five major discourses for Jesus. I like to imagine this as kind of his warm-up to the marathon of ministry that he is about to embark on. We meet Jesus on a hillside in Galilee, teaching and preaching with a group of followers. And this is Jesus' greatest teaching about discipleship, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest one. But the Beatitudes, the text in the Beatitudes, that takes us one step further. They teach us that blessing, true blessing, is found in pursuit of God's righteousness. The Beatitudes, these are not prophecies or new commandments to follow. This is a reminder that no matter how hard or challenging life can get, faithfulness can lead to a taste of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are a description of what God's kingdom vision can look like and how we, as a church family, as a body of Christ, how we are called to participate in God's service. They are a reminder of what God is doing and what God is about to do. So with this in mind, I invite you to imagine what these words might mean for you, what they might mean for your life, what these words might mean for this body, and listen for what the Spirit is up to. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Amen. 
So when I was in seminary just a few years ago during one of my preaching classes, the professor asked us how long a sermon might be, a typical sermon might be for our respective traditions. And my class had mostly Presbyterians, keep in mind, but there were some Methodists, some Episcopalians, UCC. Some people said, oh, about 10 to 12 minutes. Most of us felt comfortable using the 15-minute answer. 15 minutes, not to ever exceed 20 minutes. Why would we ever go beyond 20 minutes? But there was one individual in my class, one, confidently said, well, at least 45 minutes. And as you can imagine, many of us were shocked to hear an answer like this. When we asked why, he said, sometimes there's just that much to discuss. Now, while writing and delivering a sermon at that length sounds like a painful process for me as a preacher, my encounter with this text over the last week opened my eyes to what he meant. This text isn't as simple as we once thought. This isn't just a petition of blessings. And don't worry, I'm not preaching 45 minutes today. (laughs) But there is a lot to discuss here. In Matthew, we get our first glimpse of Jesus as an authoritative teacher. Matthew's gospel shows Jesus to be an active agent of God's power among the people. And his Sermon on the Mount, this is a pivotal moment in his career as a teacher and healer. This sermon is Jesus' inaugural address in which he lays out his vision of life in the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of this first glimpse of what radical love, radical hospitality could look like. It's kind of like our starter kit for Christianity. Our text today serves as sort of a preamble for the way in which Jesus will interpret the law and how he will conduct the remainder of his ministry. Up until this point in Matthew, Jesus has been doing the prep work for his ministry. He has been baptized, tempted, He has called his first four disciples. He has taught in synagogues, proclaimed the good news, and cured diseases and sickness. He has been busy these last five chapters, and he turns to teaching his disciples and paints this vision of God's kingdom. This text is familiar. It's well known. I'm sure many of us were saying some of these beatitudes by memory with the choir or when I just read them. There's a certain level of comfort and familiarity associated with this text. But I have to wonder about the listener's experience in this teaching moment. 
Notice that we never get an idea of what his audience is thinking or feeling in this passage. Notice the absence of any interjection or conversation. There's no questioning or even curiosity mentioned. Could it be that the listeners were in shock? Maybe disbelief? Though we find this text so beautiful and moving today, I mean, it's practically biblical poetry, there was likely some shock value for the listeners that day. This group, they don't really know what they're getting into with Jesus at this point. Yes, they know he is a strong leader, a healer, a teacher, but they do not know anything about his divinity. In fact, this group of people likely felt a little skeptical about him. They were living in less than desirable circumstances, navigating life in Galilee, and then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and proclaims that all who need to be blessed are going to be a blessing. This had to be shocking news to hear. I'm wondering if some of their sat there thinking, well, I'll believe it when I see it. But Jesus is just warming up. He is creating a space to share this good news with all people. He is setting the stage for the kingdom of God, assuring us that hope and love exist and they are available for all. He's opening the door for his community to join in his ministry and eventually act upon this good news. That's really what the Beatitude teachings are all about. Good news. The Beatitudes are not direct calls to action per se, but these are promises. Through the Beatitudes, Jesus assures the crowds that while life may be difficult, those who faithfully endure will be given new life, new life in Jesus Christ. This is not just good advice here. This is good news. The Beatitudes show us that God's righteousness is more than the sum of any commandment. It is a total shift of attitude and mindset, an invitation to live in Christ's presence. Because when we allow ourselves to simply be, simply be in Christ's presence, we are transformed. And we do have proof of this. When we look through the Gospels, we notice that all who are praised throughout are people of humility, love, trust, fidelity, and courage. They're humans. They are not perfect, but they are a people who have been transformed. They are committed and turned in the direction of the kingdom of God. Perhaps this could be a description of us. Earlier this week, I had the privilege of gathering with some of the other campus ministers at VCU for our monthly meetings, 
and we had the chance to meet with a staff member from the Rams in Recovery office. Rams in Recovery is one of the 140 collegiate recovery programs offered in the U.S. It's a space that provides resources such as peer-focused recovery, a meeting space for 12-step programs, and sober living options for students. It's a safe space for students to connect, learn, and heal. At the meeting, the staff member from the RAMS office shared that many who enter a 12-step program such as AA or NA, they identify as spiritually sick, meaning that they've exhausted all of their other resources and outlets in their journey to recovery that even one's soul is unwell. This was a new term for me, and it really struck me. I mean, really, spiritually sick. Sit with that. She explained that in a 12-step program, the ultimate goal is to reconnect to a divine source, or as she called it, the last step of the initial healing process. Because recovery is a lifelong journey and commitment to healing. I imagine many of us can connect with this diagnosis of feeling spiritually sick. It can seem so hard to see a glimpse of God's goodness and mercy at times that we even think, I'm not worth it. I'm not good enough. Doubt and grief, despair, self-loathing, these are all very human experiences. And this is our reality as a spiritually sick people. Again and again, we grow tired, weary, anxious, and unsure. We fall short in our careers, our goals, our parenting styles, our relationships, our devotion. We feel stuck in this spiritual sickness. And yet, we are still worthy of God's mercy and love because at the heart of the Beatitudes, we learn that multiple things can be true. We can be both the merciful and the peacemakers. We can be both the poor and spirit and the beloved, the mournful and the comforted, the meek and the appointed. And no matter where we are in life, we are still invited into Christ's presence, even when we are in the deepest trenches of despair and doubt. God appears on a hillside and insists that we are to be blessed. This week, our nation got another painful reminder that we are far from this image of God's peaceful kingdom. On Friday afternoon, images and videos were released of the killing of another innocent black man, Tyree Nichols. And it's, 
it's discouraging to admit that we, we live in a world that was imagined to act peacefully, but instead acts brutally, or in this case, deadly. In these moments of doubt and sadness, questioning and uncertainty, we turn to God and we ask, what now, God? How do we move forward? Where is the good news? But even in the midst of brokenness, I am comforted by the words of Micah 6, 8 that we heard. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Friends, this is the good news. God works in brokenness, and God is reminding us that we cannot just mourn in the midst of tragedy. We are called to aid God with the healing in our world. Jesus keeps calling us to a different way of life, the reign of God, which looks like peace. This is the kind of shalom that God wants for us. And we keep working on this, following Jesus, trusting God, loving our neighbor, striving to be a faithful people in a world that doesn't always feel very faithful. This is a lifelong journey. This is our first step in our initial healing process. Through the Beatitudes, God maps out what this kingdom vision can look like. And now God is calling the church to be a foretaste of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are calling us to assist God with the healing in the world. They remind us of what God is doing and what God is about to do. They are reminding us that we are both the merciful and the peacemakers, the poor in spirit and the beloved the mournful and the comforted. We are God's very own. This is the good news. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, you have invited us into this vision of righteousness. You've called us into special relationship with you. You call us to live out a kingdom vision, and we are unsure of how to do this. So God, just keep showing us the way to your shalom. We are ready to be transformed. We are your very own. This is the good news. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Amen.